Thank you very much, Michelle. And today it's my pleasure to introduce our speaker, Dr. Morgan Cable, who is currently a NASA postdoctoral fellow at JPL. So uh, Dr. Cable originally received her BA in chemistry from the Honors College of Florida Atlantic University in 2005, where she also minored in physics and mathematics and graduated as a valedictorian of her class. From there, she, she switched coasts and came over to Pasadena, where she attended Caltech as a PhD student and graduated with a PhD in chemistry in 2010, where she worked with the Ponce Group at JPL and the Grade Group here at Caltech. Her research while here um, involved lanthanide-based receptor site design for the detection of endospores in extreme environments related both here on Earth and potentially on Mars. Um, at graduation, she was also awarded with the Herbert Newby McCoy Thesis Award for outstanding contribution to chemistry. Her fieldwork has taken to a, her to a variety of interesting locations as well, um, and these include Mount Kilimanjaro in Tanzania and even the Atacama Desert in Chile. She's also spent time in Seoul, South Korea as a space camp teacher, and currently at JPL as a, a NASA postdoctoral, postdoctoral program fellow, she is currently designing a lab on a chip to separate and characterize the many organics on the surface of Titan. Please join me, join me in welcoming our speaker, Dr. Cable. He's a little taller than me. Let's see if we can, there we go. I'm gonna move around a lot anyways. Can you guys hear me okay? Yes. Great, okay, thank you so much for coming. It's really amazing how great of a turnout we've had considering summer just started. So thanks for being here and not the beach or the pool or some place warm and relaxing. So hi, I'm Morgan. I'm a postdoctoral fellow at JPL and I'm gonna tell you a little bit about my work involving lab on a chip and trying to understand Titan. So for those of you who don't live and breathe Titan, this is Titan right here. It's the largest moon of Saturn. It's actually the second largest moon in the solar system, second only to Ganymede. But if you count the atmosphere also, it is the biggest. Uh, it's a really interesting place. It's a very unusual place. It's the only other place aside from Venus that has a thick atmosphere, and Earth, of course. Uh, it's mostly nitrogen, a little bit of methane, and it's even thicker than our Earth atmosphere. The surface is comprised of water ice coated in a veneer of organics. Now, since it's so cold here, the water ice has the consistency of granite. It's about that hardness. Uh, but the organic layer is really, really interesting from a chemistry point of view. It also has a hydrologic cycle, where hydro refers to hydrocarbon, not water. So we're talking about methane and ethane and even propane. These form clouds. We have methane drizzle that rains down. It carves sort of gullies in the organic veneer that covers the surface and pools into lakes at the poles. And this is this wonderful characteristic image that was uh, taken by Cassini where you see specular reflection of one of these lakes on the North Pole of Titan. So this is reflection of the sunlight um, that can be seen from the orbiter. So let's see, hydrologic cycle. Also, Titan is believed to maybe have cryovolcanoes. So under this icy shell is a liquid water ocean, salty liquid water ocean. And it's believed that if there's some ammonia in there, or maybe some methanol, we could get upwelling and potentially have interaction of these materials with the ice and the organics on the surface. And even though it's very cold here, from a chemistry point of view, that's really exciting because you could be forming all sorts of very interesting compounds when that occurs. So Titan has a lot going on. There are many energy sources 
that are absorbed in various altitudes in the atmosphere. Uh, solar UV tends to be the, the major one, but also charged particles from Saturn's magnetosphere, cosmic radiation, even the occasional meteoritic impact can all generate energy in the atmosphere. And this is important because we start off with nitrogen and methane, but when we get this energy source, you can have various either photochemical or dissociation things going on to form various other species that contain hydrogen, nitrogen, and carbon. And these continue to react to form even more complex species, which react further and further and further until they form these large aerosol particles that fall on the surface. Now, we don't know a whole lot about what these aerosols are made of. We know some general properties. They're a heterogeneous mixture. They have both large and small species. We know uh, the approximate sizes of the monomers and the aggregates. But when it comes to the chemical functional groups that are present, things get a little bit more complicated because these, these aerosols contain on the order of thousands to tens of thousands of different compounds. So this is a mass spectrum. And it's pretty easy when you are in the short mass to charge ratio regime, you can say, okay, yep, that's methane, that's CO2. But when you start to get into the mass to charge ratios of the hundreds or the thousands or the tens of thousands, it gets much more difficult to piece back together and figure out what the original structure of some of these compounds was. And so it can be a little bit complicated. But if we want to try to understand Titan as a system, we really want to know what type of functional groups are exposed. Are there amine groups? Are there nitriles? Are, is oxygen being incorporated in any of these groups? This would be really, really interesting for us and could tell us a lot more about what's happening in the atmosphere, what potentially is happening on the surface, and the evolution of this really interesting moon. So we think that a very good way to look at these complex mixtures of chemical compounds is by doing microfluidics. And you might have heard lab on a chip. We're talking not about microchips like these. We're talking about microchips that look like this. So instead of a, a, an electrical microchip where you have wires and electrons moving along those wires, we have very small channels about the width of a human hair, and liquid flows through those. And these are important because in very, very small channels, liquids behave very differently than they do in larger channels. And we can take advantage of some of those properties to get very, very good detection and separation of a wide range of species. We can take care of amine groups like amino acids and amines, carboxylic acids that have oxygen along with ketones, aldehydes. Thiols have sulfur in them, and PAHs are these ring structures. Uh, you might smell some of those with naphthalene, the, the really stinky compound that some people get when they're trying to, uh, to keep their, their sweaters clean in, the, in your closet. Uh, so a lot of different organic compounds. And we can do this with uh, very, very good limits of detection in the sub parts per billion to parts per trillion range. And in addition to that, because we're talking about microfluidics, these are small devices, they require very small sample volumes on the order of nano to microliters low mass, low power, and they're reprogrammable. So let's say that you've launched something off to Titan, it takes years to get there, and you realize you might have made a mistake or you'd like to do an additional dilution to your sample once you get there. Well, with a device such as this, that would be fairly simple to do. We would just change the, the program on Earth, send it to the device, and then it could reroute that liquid or that sample or whatever we wanted to do. 
So there are a lot of advantages to using this kind of technology when you're considering them for spaceflight missions. So how do they work? Well, you start with a sample. We dissolve it in something. And then we do three things to it. The first thing is we tag it. And by tag, I mean, so let's say we have a solution that has a whole bunch of different chemical classes of compounds in there. And we're just interested in the amines. So we introduce a dye that is specific, binds only to those amines and nothing else. So now we've tagged what we're interested in, but this is still a complex mixture of chemicals, right? We need to now separate these into individual species so we can detect them. And the way that we do that is through something called capillary electrophoresis, or CE. Essentially, what you do is this is a channel. This is one of those channels that's about the width of a human hair. You put in a salty solution, so some kind of buffer, and then you plop electrodes in either end. And when you pass a potential across them, things will move down the channel based on something called um, electroosmotic flow, which you can control by varying the pH, the concentration of your buffer, things like that. And the important thing here is that both charged and neutral species move as well, so this is an advantage over other techniques. And they separate based on size and charge as they move. So we have our separation. Well, how are we detecting them? I've actually kind of been showing you right here, because what we do is laser-induced fluorescence. And this is actually the wavelength that we use. It's 405 nanometers, so it's purple light. So what we'll do is we'll take not this exact laser, but you know, one a little bit more powerful than that. And we, we focus it into that very, very small ch channel. It's about the width of a human hair. And as we pass our potential across and things separate, they'll move in front of the laser beam. And every time they do, we get a fluorescent signal. And we only get a signal of things that are tagged. So anything else that's in there that's not tagged, we don't care about. And based on the migration time, how long it takes these things to move down the channel, and how intense the peak is, we can tell you what it is and how much there is. And since we're using lasers, that's one of the reasons why we have such amazing sensitivity with this technique. OK, so there are a bunch of different chemical classes I mentioned that we can detect. These are some of them. Now let's think about in the context of Titan. What would be an interesting one to start with? Well, let's look back at some of the things that we know are present on Titan based on the Cassini mission. And well, we've got a couple of amines here. Amines are blue. That's blue. That's carbon. The white ones are hydrogen. Sorry, chemistry. Um, so amines. So let's start with that. Uh, so first, I want to mention, since I'm a chemist, not all of you are chemists, this is an amine. It's a nitrogen. This is a, a primary mean, so it's on the end. It's got two, two hydrogens bound to it. And I'm going to, for the rest of this talk, refer to these in terms of the length of the carbon chain attached to this amine. So this is pentylamine, but I'm just going to call it C5. So C5 amine. And I'll either show figures like this or the ball and stick models. So the blue is nitrogen. Everyone, is that good? OK. All right. So now let's look at how we adapt this to detect the means. This is what I've spent my last two and change years as a postdoc working on. So we decided for our solvent to dissolve our sample in that we would use ethanol. There are a few reasons for this. Uh, there are some chemistry reasons that make it interesting for Titan, like it's low viscosity and low freezing point. So we can do separations at lower temperatures. We want to change the sample as little as possible. So heating it up to room temperature from 90 Kelvin probably would change it a little bit. So we're trying to reduce that as much as we can. 
Ethanol also allows longer chain species to be soluble. In water, I think only up to C9 or C10 is soluble. So this allows us to look at both short and long chain species. So we know these aerosols have a bunch of different things in there. We also avoid hydrolysis. And ethanol is volatile. And since we're not destroying our sample, we could couple this technique to something downstream like uh, mass spectroscopy or some other technique and do tandem measurements on the same sample. So we picked ethanol. For our tagging, this is the dye that we use. It's called Pacific Blue. It absorbs purple wavelengths very well and then emits in the blue region. This reaction happens in basic conditions. So you have an amine, chemistry happens, and then we have our tagged amine. Okay, and then this, does, don't worry about that. That doesn't matter. So we have, we have our tagging technique. It works, trust me. I'm a chemist. Uh, <laughs> For our separation, like I said, you can change things based on the, the pH of your buffer, the concentration of your buffer, stuff like that. So I optimized that, and I was able to get separations of ammonia and C1-amine all the way up to C18. So that's 18 carbons long off the end of that, that primary amine. And the separation takes about 10 minutes, and things differing by two two carbon groups are baseline resolved. So they go all the way down, like 16 and 18 are very clearly resolved, where C5 and C6, you can still tell one peak from the other, but it's not perfectly resolved. This is still pretty good, though, considering most methods can only do either short-chain species or long-chain species, and we can do all of them. So we also, I quantify the limits of detection, and they're very sensitive. They're in the nanomolar regime, which is in the hundreds of parts per trillion. And we demonstrated this. I took my whole laser system, since it's not too big, and plopped it in a cold room and brought the whole thing down to minus 20, including my electronics, which still worked. Awesome. And this is the first time anyone's done a separation on a microfluidic chip like this ever below zero degrees. So that was kind of a big deal. I was really happy. I didn't realize that until I looked in the literature when I was writing the paper and couldn't find anything that anyone had ever done. So. That was great. So we could use this in theory at lower temperatures. Um, I wasn't. I had to be in there with it to, you know, wash electrodes and stuff. And minus 20 is pretty cold, so I wouldn't recommend going lower until we get it fully automated. Okay. So we've got a technique that works. And again, this is all on these microfluidic devices, which uh, are small, portable, great for space flight. So let's test this on some real Titan samples. Okay. So let's see. We're here. Saturn's there. This. Um, Ooh, okay, so light takes a while to get there. It took seven and a half years for Huygens, which was the European Space Agency's contribution to the Cassini mission, to get there. Um, why don't we go with stuff that we can just make here? Because <laughs> that, that's a long time. I'm not going to be a postdoc that long. So this is what's called a, a Tholin sample. This one was actually made by a collaborator who worked with Carl Sagan. He was the guy who came up with this name. So tholin is from the Greek tholos, which means dim or not clear. And uh, you can totally imagine Carl Sagan loving the double meaning of this, because not only are they sort of brownish and not clear, but we don't understand them that well. So nice. Uh, so it, although this name would have been awesome, too, if you read the paper from 1979, they, uh, <laughs> I would have liked that also. But anyways, tholins are generated with a, the same mix of the two gases that are present in Titan's atmosphere. You mix them together at, at a certain mixing ratio, depending on what part of the atmosphere you want to simulate. And then you expose it to energy. And then you can either collect things, kind of scrape them off the chamber walls, or you can do a flow system and collect 
the aerosols that are formed as they exit the chamber. And these typically are comprised of both um, small and large species. So you can have small species adsorbed onto particles, just like we believe is present on Titan. Uh, they have typically a low CN ratio and close optical properties to the Titan haze, depending on what system you're looking at and how long they run it for and a lot of different, different things. It's kind of like, um, I was talking to, to someone here at Caltech recently and he gave a good analogy of, it's sort of like baking bread to where just small changes in the, the amount of yeast you use or uh, how long you bake it for can completely change what you end up with at the end. So very, very small changes in these Titan chambers can result in large differences in the tholins that you make. So we're trying to figure out what's in them in the first place, which one is the best stimulant to what's actually present on Titan, and, and trying to find the best analog. So tholins, great. Well, like I said, you expose them to an energy source. Well, what kind and what are you simulating? So there are a bunch of different things that are in the atmosphere, right? So UV radiation, magnetospheric protons and electrons. And there are a bunch of different energy sources you can use just depending on which one you want to simulate. Uh, the plasmas typically simulate most of the um, charged particles, but they don't typically get the UV. You need to use UV radiation for that. Um, Laser-induced plasma can simulate meteoritic impacts. Electron beam can do some of the interplanetary electrons, but not the protons. You get the idea. So um, based on the energy sources that are present in Titan, remember I said UV is a major one. Also, the contribution from Saturn's magnetosphere, if you integrate over the whole atmosphere, is the second largest contributor. So we're going to look at the ones that were generated using these two techniques that kind of blanket pretty much everything. So, so, okay. So I was lucky enough to have wonderful collaborators that were actually, I met because of the Keck Institute and was able to get samples from two different universities, uh, CU Boulder and the University of Houston. Uh, the CU Boulder system actually has uh, two different energy sources that they use in their same, same setup, and the University of Houston has spark discharge. So we thought it would be interesting to compare two different energy sources that are in the same tholin generating system and be able to compare one energy source between two different systems to try to get an idea of how these compare and how they're different. So first I'm gonna talk about UC Boulder. Oh, and um, the spark discharge, I have a little lightning bolt here. This is actually what it looks like in their chamber when they're, uh, when they're running. So, okay, so for the rest of the talk, I wanna explain kind of how we're gonna look at this data. These are some of the tholin samples. You can see the colors are very different. And what I do is I'll, I'll dissolve those up in the ethanol like I showed you before, and I'll do a separation with the laser. So we detect things, and I'll get an electrophorogram like this. And I will identify species based on, I can spike things in to help my identification. And then based on the calibration curve, I will convert these to percent by weight. So all the rest of the data I'm going to show you in this presentation has uh, percent by weight on the y-axis and then chain length in terms of number of carbons. So this is methylamine, this is ethylamine, you get the idea, all the way up to the C20s. All right, so now let's look at samples from CU Boulder. We're gonna start with the spark discharge samples. So we have nitrogen and methane, they enter a mixing cylinder, they go through a mass controller so they can control the flow rate and then can either go to this UV lamp or the Tesla coil. Now we're gonna do the Tesla coil sample. Then it goes through to a collection cell where there's some quartz filter paper and that's how 
the samples are collected. But also one sample I'll be talking about was scraped from these chamber walls. Uh, so we'll look and see if there are any differences there. There are. Okay, so Spark 1 and Spark 2 were collected on the quartz filter paper. Spark 3, which is this orange guy, uh, was the one that was scraped from the chamber walls and was also exposed to oxygen. The others were not. No, none of the other samples were ever exposed to oxygen, which is important, because Titan has no oxygen in its atmosphere. And people have found that tholins, if you make them on Earth, well, of course you make them on Earth, that's the only place you make them, but um, if they're exposed to water or oxygen, they can chemically change and form other species that weren't there originally. So we look at this, we see, oh, all of them seem to have a peak right here at C2, ethylamine. That's really interesting. Why ethylamine? Why not methyl? Uh, we're still working on this. I'm talking to some people who are atmospheric chemists and model the Titan atmosphere for a living, and it's probably just a stability issue, but we're still trying to figure that out. But it was kind of nice that all samples had the same, the same major amine product. Um, if we split them up, you can sort of look at their their profile, see how they compare. We all have um, ethylamine, but these two samples seem to have more long-chain amines than this one. So, and remember, this is the one that was exposed to oxygen and scraped from the chamber wall, so it was exposed to that energy source for a much longer amount of time. So let's zoom in, and yeah, even when you zoom in, you can see a lot of long amine content here that we don't see here. Now, there's something that is referred to in the Titan community as the wall effect, where samples that are done in kind of a flow-through system, they're collected on filters, that type of thing, tend to look like this, spherical particles, just like the aerosols we believe are present on Titan, whereas those that are allowed to sort of form in layers along the chamber walls or deposited on, on sort of a flat substrate tend to look more like this. And it's still unclear chemically if there are major differences in a lot of tholins that are made here, we do see a difference. Um, and so it, we're still not sure whether the reason that we see something here is because of the exposure to oxygen or the exposure to, the, to this wall effect that could have happened while the tholin was forming. Um, but it seems that either one or both definitely affects the amine content in these tholins. And that should be something that we, we should pursue further, but we don't have enough samples to kind of make a, a general conclusion regarding this. Okay, so those were the spark discharge. Well, let's look at a UV sample. UV samples are a little bit more difficult to make. Actually, they're a lot more difficult to make. It takes a lot longer because the energy density of a UV lamp is not nearly as high. So I was very happy to Sarah Horst because she made me a sample. And again, we see that Ethylamine is the major component, but I don't know if you were keeping track of the percents by weight before, but this is about an order of magnitude less. So there's a lot less amines, which makes sense, right? Because, okay, so now I'm gonna compare the total amine content of that sample to the other three that I showed you before. And the amine content overall of this one is lower. So is this one. But if you're just thinking in terms of UV, these are the, Wavelengths required to either photodissociate for the D or photoionize um, the major components of Titan's atmosphere. And there's, since we're working in uh, 115 to 400 nanometers is the wavelength regime of this UV lamp, this is the only sort of photoactivation that could happen if you have that UV lamp and you're exposing it to, to methane and nitrogen. Um, so this does tell us something interesting. This tells us that uh, one formation mechanism of these amines must involve 
this photochemical activation of methane. It's not breaking apart the nitrogen. There's not enough energy. But somehow, that methane is attacking the nitrogen and kind of tearing it apart and then forming these amines, which is kind of cool. This is only the second time anyone's ever seen this in tholins, which is pretty awesome. And we also see that the tholin that was exposed to oxygen um, and stuck on the chamber walls also has a lot lower uh, amine content. So that's pretty interesting. All right. OK, so we've compared two things that were made in the same chamber but using different energy sources. Well, now let's look at University of Houston's chamber. So this chamber is a little bit different. Uh, it doesn't have the ability to do the UV, but it does have some added perks like uh, temperature control. So they were able to, all the other samples I showed you were made at room temperature, and there's a big debate about whether or not you need to cool them down to Titan-like temperatures when you're making them. Um, so this, this chamber can do both room temperature and um, Titan atmospheric temperatures. Also, there's some pressure adjustments, and you can control the gas flow rate. So in this chamber, you'll get discharged between these two electrodes here, and then the tholins kind of fall down onto the bottom of the chamber and are also collected without being exposed to oxygen. So these are the four samples that I obtained from this chamber. And at first glance, hey, we've got ethylamine again. Yay, just like we saw with the other chamber. That's kind of cool. But what's that? And what's that? So we have these two long chain amines. That's kind of weird. Why just those two? I'm not really sure. But they're not present in all of the tholins either. So let's, let's split them up like we did before. And it looks like those two long chain species are only present in these top two samples. Well, the only thing these two samples have in common is that they were both made at high pressure, higher pressure, still pretty low pressure. It's like six or seven tor. Um, but they were made at different temperatures. That's really interesting. It seems that the pressure seems to have more of an effect than the temperature. Likewise, these two samples on the bottom also seem very similar. They have ethylamine as their main product, C2-amine, but nothing really interesting in terms of the long-chain species. And they were both generated at lower pressure but different temperatures. So just from a, a granted n equals 4 sample size, it does appear that pressure seems to be more of a factor than temperature does in terms at least of a mean composition. Who knows what else it could be doing to the other samples or the other chemical compounds in the samples. OK, so now we've, we've looked at the University of Houston. Now let's compare these two techniques that were both spark discharge, but made in slightly different conditions because they're in different chambers. And so if we look at all of these, all of the University of Houston samples are in yellow. All of the bolder ones are in blue. And it was kind of nice for me to see that the percents by weight are pretty comparable. They're at least in the same range. So that tells me that my technique is, is fairly consistent and that whatever is happening to these means, there seems to be some type of saturation where you're forming up to this weight percent and then we don't really see anymore. Uh, maybe it's converting to something else. That's something that we're, we're still pursuing. But we do see that ethylamine is found in all of them, all spark tholins and in the UV tholin as well. And we see these two major products that are only present in the Houston tholins. So one thing that um, when you're talking about atmospheric chemistry and formation of these species, remember, they're just starting from methane and nitrogen, two tiny molecules, right? And they're getting energy sources that are breaking them apart or ionizing them, doing something, and they start to combine, right? And so we see 
ethylamine, we see C2. But if these are combining in some way to form these larger, more complex species, we're not seeing any more amines. If, if this were some type, this is a, um, a plot of the formation of fullerene and other kind of uh, exponential growths where you start with kind of C1, C1, they combine form C2, and then those combine and form C4, and then you get larger and larger and larger. And so you see this kind of exponential decay as you get to the higher molecular weight species. And if we were to see something like that in our data, we should have seen something like this. But we don't. We don't see barely any C4 or C6 or anything that's larger. So this tells me that the formation mechanisms to form these larger species, they've got to be there because we see, you know, you can see these powders. They're definitely larger than just ethylamine. But they probably don't involve primary means longer than C2. So what could be happening is that you could be forming these longer chain species, but the nitrogen is getting stuck in the middle or someplace where it's not exposed anymore and we can't see it with our technique anymore. So we've got a few conclusions that we've drawn based on this work. The first is that when we compared spark discharge tholins to those made with UV radiation, that the amine content is much higher in the spark discharge samples. This is what we expected, but the fact that we found some in the UV samples is pretty exciting. Um, and it's probably because of this photoactivation of methane. Second, all of the tholins have this ethylamine that's present. And right now, this isn't really included in models of Titan atmospheric chemistry. They tend to just include methylamine. So this is something that should be considered for uh, future modeling efforts that are done on the Titan atmosphere. Also, we've seen, which others have seen as well, but this is the first time we've reported it for a particular chemical class for amines that oxygen and or the wall effect has a major, major effect on the amine content. So that's something that we can use to better inform future tholin generation techniques. We also have found that the amine composition is influenced by pressure, which is why we see these two oddly long species only in one particular chamber granted, but there are definitely variations between chambers. Um, and we've seen that the formation of larger and more complex species in these solons doesn't appear to involve anything longer than C2. So if you were to uh, look at, I know this is a lot of chemistry, but bear with me here. Uh, this is uh, some formation mechanisms that are proposed by one of our collaborators. And if I were looking at this, since I know that nothing longer than ethylamine seems to be a major component, I would say if we have formation of something like this through ammonia or HCN addition, that uh, most likely we're doing things where we're cyclizing, cycl we're having cyclization occur. Uh, so, so the primary means are turning into secondary means or they're otherwise being, being entrained or, or trapped away so our dye can't attach onto them anymore. So I would lean towards mechanisms like this as opposed to ones like this where we leave a lot of primary means available that we're not seeing in any of our, our um, tholins that we've looked at. So in terms of the implications of this work, I always like to think about the big picture and, and being a JPL, you're around astrophysicists that are discovering new stars every day and black holes and all sorts of cool stuff. So we got to sort of bring up our astrochemistry muster here. Uh, there are a lot of very cool implications. Not only can we help figure out the best way to simulate Titan aerosols on Earth, but we can improve our understanding of Titan through microfluidic 
technologies, the things that I've talked about, all of these things that I've done in the lab, we have miniaturized and automated and can put them on a spacecraft. And we're working on doing that, but you know how budgets go. <laughs> but hopefully soon. So you know, write your congressman. Tell them about microfluidics, how great it is. Uh, but not only that. So, so our sun is a, what is it, a yellow? It's a G dwarf star. And it's actually not that common. The most common star, in the, in, at least in the Milky Way, is uh, M dwarf stars, which are red dwarfs. And they're much, much less um, intense than the sun. So any planet or moon around a gas giant that is in a stable orbit around a star like this would have to be um, at about 1 AU away, pretty much where our Earth is. Uh, if it's any closer, it would be warmer, but then you'd have like uh, coronal mass ejections and gravity would tear it apart and it'd be, you'd have problems. So if you're about 1 AU away from these much dimmer stars, you're getting much less radiation, right? And so it turns out that at that distance away, the Planets or moon or planetoid would be much more like Titan than it would be like Earth. So just statistically speaking, there are a lot more Titans out there than Earths. So anything that we discover about the, the interesting chemistry that's happening on the surface in the atmosphere um, or on the subsurface of this moon can have pretty wide, broad implications and is pretty exciting. So. I've told you all about amines, and they're a really interesting chemical target, but they're not the only one. There are lots of different functional groups that we can use these specific dyes that only attach to one kind of functional group to look at. And now that I'm sort of wrapping up the amine work, I've started on our next target, which is carboxylic acids. Now, these are interesting for a variety of reasons. By the way, this is a carboxylic acid. It's got a double bonded oxygen and then a hydroxide on the end of a carbon chain. And they're present in all of you. They're in your cell membranes. They're really great for keeping things in and keeping some things out. And, and, uh, and they're also interesting for Titan, because like I said before, there's not a lot of oxygen in the Titan atmosphere. There's very, very little. I think it's like 0.005% CO is all that's there. But the surface is, has lots of oxygen, right? It's water ice. But the problem is it's so cold that in terms of thermodynamics, we're not really sure what kind of chemistry could happen. Uh, but over geologic timescales, you know, four billion years, maybe there's some chemistry that's going on and we're getting oxygen incorporation in the Titan aerosols that are on the surface. Now, if that's the case, this would be a great thing to look for, carboxylic acids, because they're kind of the, the fully reduced form of an oxygen. Uh, so, so it'd be nice to take this and send it to Titan, but it would also be nice to look at tholins on Earth because something that not a lot of Titan chemists talk about but is a big problem is water and oxygen contamination in your Titan chambers. Um, a recent study found, I think it was like 11% by weight oxygen in some of their tholins. You're not supposed to have any. 11% is <laughs> kind of bad. So it would be interesting to see if we can use this very, very sensitive technique to determine what the oxygen content is. Is it just adsorbed water, or are we chemically altering these tholins and forming other things that we don't want to be there? So we're studying this thing, thinking that it's the same as what's present on Titan, and it's completely not. Uh, so it would be interesting for that. And also, just like I said, fatty acids are in your cells. They're in bacterial cells. And so this could be a great biomarker, because it hangs out for a while. And it would be a nice way to look for bacteria or evidence maybe of ancient microbes on comets or meteorites, things like that. 
So, uh, so we started working on, on this, and again, chemistry happens. It's a little bit more complicated. Look, it's two steps. See, two arrows than, um, than the last one. But trust me, it works, because this is data I got last week, and this is fatty acids from C2 all the way up to C28, which is that little hump right there. It's not very soluble in water, by, or water in ethanol by the time you get that to that length, but that's pretty exciting. Most of your fatty acids in your cell membranes are right around in here. So, um, so we're still working on figuring out what the limit of detection is for this method and finding real samples to test. If anyone knows someone who's got like a cool sediment sample somewhere, Andy, do you have anything cool? No? Yeah? Okay, I'm going to talk to you later. <laughs> uh, so this is a, a really exciting direction to take this, this work in. Uh, and with that, I would like to thank, I'm a little quick, I guess I talked fast. But I, I would like to thank the Willis Lab. Peter Willis is my advisor. He's sitting right there. We have two other great postdocs in the lab who I didn't do anything like this as a grad student. I worked with lanthanides and romped around Kilimanjaro and, and didn't do any microfluidics. So they've been very patient with me and taught me a whole lot, and I really appreciate them. Um, for Tholins, we had, I've got some wonderful collaborators, both at, oh, that's CU Boulder, sorry, and University of Houston. Sarah Horst and Chow Hay have been great. And for funding, I'm funded by the NASA postdoctoral program, but a lot of this work was also funded through the ASTID program at JPL. And I also wanted to make a quick note that this, all of the work that I've told you about sort of had its origins in KISS. Uh, when I was, my first year as a postdoc, I was invited um, by someone sitting in the front row to attend a uh, Titan workshop that was put on by KISS. And, uh, Got to meet some really great people. These are two of the leads, uh, Jonathan Lunin and, and Jennifer Jackson, and um, got to meet a lot of these Titan people. And I was really interested in Titan, but I didn't know much about it. I had done endospore stuff before, and it was a really great experience. Uh, got to meet experts in the field, and I wasn't afraid to ask questions. It was a very informal setting, uh, and I really loved that. It had both graduate students, postdocs, all the way up to these, these PIs who've been doing Titan work for years. And because of that, we started these collaborations with all these people who I got samples from. It was all based on that um, first interaction through, through this workshop. So thank you to KISS for helping make my postdoc amazing. And with that, I'd like to thank you all for attending. <laughs>